Welcome to the Alberta Health Services COVID-19 podcast. In this episode, Dr. Lana Potts, Medical Director at Elbow River Healing Lodge, talks about the challenges Alberta's Indigenous communities are facing during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, I'll introduce myself and my language. So, okay, Niksukwa, Nitaniku, Dr. Lana Potts. I am the medical director at Elbow River Healing Lodge. I'm also a family physician who works specifically with Indigenous populations, and I have specialized training within that background. I'm from the Pikani Nation in uh, in the Blackfoot Confederacy in southern Alberta, and I've lived here in Calgary for about nine years, working solely with First Nations, Inuit and Métis people as a primary care provider. Welcome and thanks for joining us. There's a lot of fear, confusion and uncertainty for Indigenous communities with the outbreak of COVID-19. The measures being posed around COVID-19 are bringing back memories of historic trauma and mistrust. A lot of people are fearful of even being tested. Why is this and what do you say to people who are fearful at this time? The issue of having a a new disease, kind of a disease that's come up that we haven't faced before as a society is maybe new to Canadians, but it's really not new to Indigenous people. Indigenous people, unfortunately, have been exposed over the last 150 years to different illnesses that have affected us, that have decimated our population. So when we hear the word smallpox in communities, there's a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety and memory. There's blood memory around the loss of people with with TB. Um, When you hear what TB had done to our, when it came in the 20s and with the TB sands. And so again, we started to hear, well, there's a new illness. There's an illness that's in virgin soil that we've not seen, which is why it's called novel. And people get afraid of that. They wonder, what does that mean for us? Because our past history and connection with viruses and bacterial illnesses have been very challenging for our communities. They've been very, they've, they've killed a lot of who we, who our ancestors were, our children, they've isolated us, they've put us in hospitals where we didn't, where we couldn't leave for decades and sometimes people have spent their entire life in those, in those institutions. And I think when they hear this, it, it's scary. And it's scary not only from an Indigenous perspective, from a world perspective, because what happens in one part of the world is not necessarily happening in North America. We don't know that if a child gets it, how it'll affect them versus an elder getting it. And I think the unpredictability is causing a lot of anxiety. But the historical aspects of what novel illness, looking at how illnesses in the past have affected our population and it's not just getting sick with it it's the response we got as indigenous people around getting health care around getting seen around getting treatments around getting people to come in to be able to say we will help you we will get you the treatment we will keep you in the hospital and that has been a fear of what happens when we get sick are we going to be allowed into hospitals and this brings up that second wave of I don't want to get it and possibly if nobody identifies that I have it, I may be okay. Because in the past when people have been diagnosed with illnesses, they were removed from community. They were taken away to hospitals and cities and places far away from where they identified as home and they didn't come home. And I hear this a lot from people who I do as a doctor to this day have to send in for extra assessment and training and urgent care and emergency, they don't want to go. And the word they tell me is, I don't want to die there. And I worry that I'll never see my family again. And this comes back to what happened when our people were sent away with illness, sent away with residential school, and put in hospitals that they didn't come home with. And the testing has to do with you don't want 
they worry that I don't want to be branded as that. What does that make me? What does that, how can that further then isolate me from my family? Because even that word isolation, does that mean you have to be alone? Does that mean you have no supports? You put in a place where you don't have anybody really connecting. And I think there's a, some mis misinformation out there. Um, on the flip side, you see a very responsive communities from a community level, and I'll speak specifically around Sixaga where I work, is you see a community who's just said, we want to help our, the members. We were here, we'll do everything we can. They've gone over and above to give good information, really explain what isolation means, but create community safe spaces for isolation, and also create it to be open to be tested. That it's okay if you drive through, just as you get a coffee, you can drive through and get tested in Sixaga. And if you're, and there's a lot of care that comes with getting tested out there. The nurse, nurses contact you, they call you, they make sure you're doing okay, they ask you how you're feeling, how you're wait, what you're waiting. What does that feel like when you wait for a test? That if you get positive may change your life. You know, it may be mild, but in a lot of cases we're seeing it might be res severe, you know, respiratory disease or, or other illnesses. And that is where there's a big fear of unknown. And the fact that all First Nations are not getting all that support, that all we see in the media is COVID case, you know, deaths. We're not hearing the recovery. We're not hearing the positive that people do recover from this, that actually the number of recovery exceeds the number of people actually dying. But people focus often on that sensational part of, well, you might die from it. And all of those factors lead to somebody having lots of apprehension of showing up to say, I might have a sore throat, I might have a runny nose. But I want to really reassure that people are aware that it isn't, I want to say that it's not the same way it was 150 years ago. That we live in a healthcare system that cares. We are in a healthcare system that is driven by, by thought and good heart. And we want people to know that we're here to help them. And we're here really identifying that you have COVID and reaching out if you're looking at to say, well, I have a cough or a cold that could be COVID, really comes back to our own teachings. Our own teachings as Indigenous people around protecting each other, around looking out for each other. One of our teachings is kindness and really thinking that being kind to yourself and recognizing when you need help but reaching out is a part of our teaching. And if we don't do that and if we don't make that step forward to say, I might need some help, I might I might have contracted a cold or a cough or a flu or, or COVID, then we, you, you're actually not following our teachings. And we need to be reminded of where that comes from. Years ago, in my, as, a, as a Blackfoot person, the word esukinaki actually means doctor. But there was no, it literally means kind of heavy-hearted singer. And what it was is you went to the person and said, I need help. I need help to help you need to help me get through this. And part of it, I look at that as prevention, that they, part of prevention is recognizing, show up, get tested, reach out, and through that we'll get supports for you. Because if people sit at home and they're sick and they don't know, they can get other people sick. And they could get our elders sick, and our elders are our source of information. They're our source of where our, where our language lies, where our ceremony, origins lie in a lot of cases they hold this knowledge and if they're gone it is losing not just an individual but you could be the loss of a culture and a language a way of a way of life that can never be replaced by anything so by getting tested we protect our most vulnerable people which become our elders but also become our children because our children in our teaching bring those teachings back that's a part of what their life is to be and that's the piece I think people need to feel safe in 
that you may get, you get tested. If it's a positive, we bring supports in. It's not a way of saying we're going to take you away. Family connection is very important in many Indigenous communities. For those who may need to isolate, what does this mean and what is your advice? I think recognizing around isolation is, is looking back again, coming back to where we come from, that sometimes in our own lives we need self-reflection and we need kind of personal time for ourselves. And to look at it not as a negative, not to look at it as to say, well, you need to isolate and it's a bad thing. It may be some time to have time for yourself, have some self-reflection, ground yourself in where you are, take support that's there. It can be hard for sometimes to be at peace with ourselves and to kind of have our own, our own thoughts. And again, that word isolate is that fear of recognizing, does that mean I have to leave my home? Does that mean I have to move, you know, go to the city and sit in a, sit in a gym on a, in a cot? No. And I think the better teaching, that the information that can get out to communities, that isolation just means you have to protect yourself. But the most thing you're protecting is your family. You're protecting those people in your home. And one of the challenges of self-isolating in a First Nations community, in not all families, but a lot of them, is there's multi-generations that live in a home. And often it can be a two-bedroom, a three-bedroom home with 10 or more people with not a, not a luxury to say, well, you can go to the basement and live in the basement for two weeks. You might have to share a bedroom. So recognizing around structuring, and that's where we they look, we as First Nations people need to say, well, we need some help. And that's where we look at on a bigger scale, how do we bring services into community that might not exist? That there's a housing crisis that already occurs, there's a health crisis that occurs. So right now we need outside resources to come in to say, well, what can we offer? Whether that's portable buildings, help you know outfit other buildings, whether that's schools or gyms. And they've done a good job of that in Siksika as an example where they outfitted the high school to have, um, I believe it's over 30 COVID beds that if people are isolated, they need they have 30 bedrooms that they've made from the classrooms. So it's about recognizing, about repurposing. And that's what we did. As, as adaptable we were to ourselves, we were adaptable in our environments. And years ago, when we lived off the land, we recognized what we needed and we, we changed and we stopped and we took care of ourselves. And I think on a you know, on a bigger level, on a looking at it from a spiritual level, self-isolation can be a time for themselves. And one of the teachings the elders said to me is, I was self-isolated. I actually had traveled at the end of February and I went to California and I should not have. That was my decision. I had to go for work. And when we came back, uh, we contracted a respiratory-like illness similar to COVID. And we were isolated. We were not able to get the testing because the testing parameters were very contingent on travel only to China. So my husband and my children and I were self-isolated in our home for 14 days. And it was a teaching. I reached out to the elder, one of my elders and I said, I feel really scared and I was upset and I wasn't sure what uncertainty that was going to look like for me. And she said, well, look at it as a time as you're being put together. You're being a time to reflect with each other, to support each other, get teachings from your children, get teachings within your home, be more be more aware of your environment and what you need to do to protect yourself. Fortunately, I, we tested negative for COVID, but it was just that whole perspective of going through that process of getting tested, finally getting tested later on. But what does that like when you sit in your home for 14 days? What is that like to have a world outside when you're, when you're put as almost a spotlight to say, well, you might have it, and people knew that, right? And we were flagged by public health, and we had to sit in our house. And 
it became in my community people were afraid of me. So I know this fear of the stigma that people talk about because my family was afraid of me. They did, were like, oh my, you came to our house, you did this. This was before all we knew mo much more about the illness. And I started to look at that as we recovered on how I can help people recognize it's okay recognize it's okay but really start to have empathy of their own anxiety around COVID, their own anxiety around having to self-isolate and try to share good teachings that I've learned within myself, learned by my elders and really to understand that isolation doesn't mean necessarily bad, it means protection of ourselves and really protection of our spirit. In particular, there is a lot of concern for elders. Can you explain why elders are so vulnerable? And are there any specific tips you might offer about caring for our community's elders? So the issue of being an elder in a First Nations community holds different weight than it does in a non-First Nations community. The idea of being called an elder means you have knowledge. And it, it carries something with you because being, as a Blackfoot person, we have an oral culture. We have an oral culture that's when you learn when you learn something you sit and you talk with somebody we call it in a transfer of knowledge of bumaksin of transferring knowledge from one person to another from one generation to another and often everything within our ceremony is guided by an elder it's guided by elder with purpose with language and when you when you think about if we were to lose the internet just on a very very simple level on a, it's done we we go on our phones, it's not there. As a society, how do we function? How do we function with not having accessibility? Where do we get our, our information? Where do we get our answers? Where do we get that transmission of communication from A to B? Well, that's in a lot of ways what our elders represent in our community. They become on a scale of that core of where, why, we're, we're, why are we needed to be people? It comes from our elders, it comes from our ceremonialists and people who have this knowledge to continue that work on, continue sharing those songs, sharing our language, sharing those teachings. And if they're gone, we don't have that anymore. We don't have that anymore to, to turn to. We have no ways to call someone to say, we need some help. How do we guide this? We need some you know, peace to help us get through this. They're gone and I think on going back historically, we, we had see this, we did see this happen. We did see this happen when millions of people died from smallpox in North America. Like that, you walk into homes and communities and they're gone. And my grandmother, who is 96 years of age and still alive and well and fully um, very spry woman, she lived through three pandemics in, this, her, in, her, in her generation. And she shares a story with me of a community, the Spanish flu hit, she's Gwich'in, and the Spanish flu hit the Northern Territories much later than it did other places. And she went with her, her father to this one house, and she shared this with me about last week. She walked in the house and she said there was, the entire family was dead. They had died of the flu, and because nobody had found them, they were found about a few days later. But in the story, she said, I asked her about her songs. I asked her about where she came from. And she said, well, the person who had died actually held those last songs. And it was heartbreaking to me because I, it really set that she seen this. Like in her lifetime, that's in her culture ha, is still strong and still, still vibrant, but that loss that they'll never get back. And we've had a lot of elders that, that are lost in my own family and my own circle. 
that we'll never get back. And I think this, what we've seen happen in Italy, what we say happen, you know, across the, we say the great water, when the elders were the ones who were dying. And we think, well, when we don't have elders, we have nobody to ask, how do you get through this? How do you live through this? And it's through my own, her, or her guidance as, as a doctor even, she helps me understand, well, how do you focus? What should we focus on with looking at pandemics? Because she's been through this. What are some teachings you can give? And if I don't have that with her, how do we then, how can then I not take the knowledge I have and transmit it on, have that bumaksin with my children and my community and even with sharing in this, like this media, it's important that we recognize it's not just about losing old people, it's actually losing the foundation of where we come from. And the foundation of our elders builds not only just our health, it builds our governance, it builds our laws, it builds our community, that everything really lies on those people we identify as elders. For many people living on reserve, there are challenges to access care and information. What's your advice for people who are living in homes with a lot of other people who may not have access to computers or phones or may be afraid to go get tested if they are feeling sick? I think one of the most important things is to recognize, is understanding what what COVID is. When you talk about COVID, coronavirus, COVID-19, it's really recognizing it becomes, uh, we are worried because we talk about it being a respiratory illness, potentially then affecting the rest of the body. And people will say it was like a flu-like illness or like a cold. And um, But really understanding that the most important thing is what we can do is prevention. Prevention, we know works. We know that that works. Things around washing your hands, um, having, you know, kind of, if you're feeling unwell, to be able to reach out, to be able to reach out, even that's locally at a health center, to be able to, you know, ask a friend to maybe make a call for you, to get a community health nurse, or if you're fortunate to have a doctor in your community, to reach out to report how you're feeling. If you can't leave your home, like you can't actually have physically nowhere to go, that you, and you're, you are feeling well, you do your best to isolate yourself within with a bedroom or a part of your house. You do the best to keep you know common surfaces clean, um, really ensuring that you're not sharing common food spaces together. Maybe you know eating in little in shifts can actually protect people when they're sick and cleaning up the best you can after cleaning washrooms we've know we know has been identified as being a key spot of possible transmission. This is a res- they call it respiratory or droplet meaning that when we speak, um, that's often how it can be transmitted. I use the um, analogy of using glitter, and I've talked about this before. If you were to put glitter on your hand, and I wish I had this, and you were to speak with glitter, right here we know it would fall everywhere. And if we think about this potential transmission of this virus in the same way, we can't see it, but that's what we're worried about. And you necessarily wouldn't get sick from one piece of glitter, but you'd get sick from a collection of it. And so by doing our best to wash our hands, isolate to the best that you can to recognize your, be used to your own, kind of your own germs in a lot of way, but it's, it's they call that connection with people who you're not, who are not in your home or maybe come into your home can, can leave this behind. And there's a good story that happened out of um, northern Saskatchewan that this elders has spoke about recently, that they were home, that they were well. They had no, hadn't did everything, hand washing, masks, hand sanitizer, one person in the grocery store, everything that was advised by public health. And it was one person who didn't live in their home, came in their home and had tea 
sat at their table and had tea and they contact traced back and unfortunately the household did get sick as a result of that virus. The person was not sick, the person visited them and they felt you know, the words, I was being safe, I don't feel unwell. And so just to be aware of that, that we're, we're aware that it can be transmitted even when you're not sick. So the best thing to do is prevention, washing hands and recognizing that it's okay to reach out. And when you reach out, you'll get more support than if you did if you were just at home worrying. Because when you're at home by yourself, you don't get that support that's really in our teachings from, from that helping each other. And that becomes what we want to do and nobody will harm you for getting tested. Nobody, it's not, it's not, shouldn't be looked at as a bad thing. It should be looked as you wanting to protect children, protect elders, protect your own family members to make sure that you're safe. Spirituality is an important part of many Indigenous people's personal identity and well-being. Any advice on how people can continue to participate in ceremonies in the time of COVID-19? I think the issue of recognizing when we talk about Indigenous health and ceremony, it's not an act of being a religion. And so it's hard to share than to say, well, don't don't pray on one day a week. It, it becomes Indigenous health and Indigenous ceremony is inherent to who we are. Indigenous health is, a, is the government's laws of where we come from. It's our, our inherent right of how we live. It becomes our way of life. It becomes our connection to the land, the connection to the water, the connection to we call the sky beings, so our animals and to each other. And so that act of telling people, well, don't pray, don't, it's, it's actually, it's not, it's invalid, but it's also, it's not accurate because it's not something you can turn off. It's not something you can decide to put off for another day. So we need to be respectful that across this land and across where we, where we meet today in traditional Blackfoot territory is our practices and principles are different than you know, our Cree brothers and sisters to the north and our Dene brothers and sisters locally and our Sioux brothers to the west of us is that we need to really connect, understand that we need to be respectful of what people need to do that in what, what keeps us well is our ceremony, what keeps us well is that connection back to each other. And we, by taking that away, we actually will get sick. That's a part of, has been demonstrated in the past through when separation occurred and the banning of the ceremonies that occurred in the 1920s, when they were banned until 1978. And the idea is not to ask people, don't pray, don't get together and don't gather, but really do it in a way to reduce your risk because we know the transmission of COVID-19 is high. We know that it's easily transmitted through close contact, through speaking, through touching, through, we know that. So what we can do then is protect people by educating them, ensuring people have good information on transmission, good information on prevention. And prevention with COVID fortunately can be as simple as having hand sanitizer, washing your hands, wearing masks to protect your, you actually protect yourself when you, oh, sorry, you're protecting yourself of you by transmitting the virus by wearing a mask. You're not so much protecting um, by getting it. So just to be aware of that, um, possibly talking with people about self-isolating if they have to be in close contact, recognizing the, the two meter difference or the six feet difference is there's a reason behind it and giving people good rationale for them then to make decisions. Also, though, being respectful of people's decisions to, 
it's not about allowing them to have ceremony, it's recognizing this is a part of their life. So you give people information, you let them anyway, as you know, you have a human right to decide on what you need to do. But the whole goal in the end of protection is protecting our elders and protecting what, what can be done in a good way. And I recently went to a socially responsible ceremony where I attended as, as a doctor, but was with a small group, you know, limited to the number of people set out through our public health guidelines. We probably distanced, you know, five to 12 meters apart. Nobody got in close contact, washed our hands, wore masks, screened ourselves before we went, and we're very conscientious of recognizing that it, the, the, the the ceremony needed to happen. That's a part of our laws. That's a part of our, our laws with, we call them natural laws, with our creator, with our land. They needed to occur. But we did it in a way where we protected each other, where we realized we want to be here next year. There's a teaching in our that we want to see our moccasins every year in the snow, that at the end of the year you want to see your moccasin footprints in the snow. And when we, we live by that. We live by, well, then how do we protect you so we could see you here in the winter? We could see you here as we, as we sit here and pray next year. And that was what we were mindful of as a, as a family and as a ceremonial, a ceremonialist. I seen them being mindful of that, that it's never to harm people, but it's to recognize we, we can't tell people not to live, but we can give them information on what can be safe. And at the end, we also have to respect that there's differing views on this, um, that there are people who will say, no, I, we, we still need to get together and, again, educate people. People are smart. They'll be able to make those understandings for themselves. Um, but being respectful of, of really the laws of, of the local communities, of the laws of what, who, who we believe, what, where we come from, is really going to be more of an ally than really coming across and saying you can't have a ceremony, you can't gather, and putting public health orders on something that's that's bigger than that's that's a part of what what we're about um, is more respectful. And I think you, that's what helped when I went to the socially responsible ceremony, is because people recognized the public health, the police. There was um, the not sorry not the police the health director there was other people who were involved to say I want to help you we're not here to stop you we're not here to say you can't do this but let's give you all the resources you can to protect yourselves so at the end of the day walking away your risk is minimal your risk is less than is if you went to Walmart or Superstore or into a mall like your risk becomes almost minimal compared to those those gatherings We've touched on this a bit, but we do know that there have been restrictions on gatherings. Are there ways people can gather together for important times such as ceremony, birthdays, marriages, and funerals? I think the idea, again, is it's is recognizing it's gathering in a good way. And they, this word is thrown aloud. What does that mean when you say you do things in a good way? It means it comes from good intent within your heart. It comes from good intent that what you're doing is done in a mindful way of protecting other people. It's not done in a way where you're going just to be there, but you're being mindful of where you are. You're being mindful of the, the situation that you're going into, the space that you're going to be occupying, and recognizing, is there a place for me at this time? Recognizing, and I'll, I'll, like, I'll talk a little bit about, not, a, not so much a celebration, but a recognition, recognition of loss, is we've had a lot of loss in communities, and normally they're mass gatherings of individuals who get together who support each other, who care for each other, who cry with each other, who mourn with each other, and there's a limit on how many can go. And 
you hear talk, well, I, I'm, I'm here for the family, I'm doing it distantly, I'm praying for people, I'm connecting for them within my own home, and I'm purposely not going because I care about them, because I care that it's possibly not the best way that I do want to be there. And I've known people that have lost, you know, family members that have lost, you know, fathers and brothers and sisters, and they don't go because they recognize it's about being mindful. And I also think that that comes back to our teachings. It's, it's really that respect for each other and that respect that you're not going because you care. You're not going because you don't care. You're, you're not, maybe you, the person to have a, a birthday party, normally you want to have, celebrate their 50th year of, you know, being alive or 50th year of marriage, but you recognize it's probably best to protect them because we don't know what we, we carry. We don't know that as individuals we could carry this virus, we can transmit it. And the story that I shared with you in Saskatchewan, that's as easily as it was. It was a good, they sat down for tea and all of a sudden a family got sick. And so to be mindful that being present can be, being present can be harmful, but being absent can be mindful in a way that can help people recognize you care in a different way. You can offer other means of support, whether that's through messages, through letters, um, through just, you know, maybe offering, you know, a, a call or even they do lots of drive-bys just to say hello that we're here. But I think that whole thing of active celebrating is again comes back to this teaching that there's times where we need to be quiet. There's times where we have to just be self-reflection with with ourselves with our own family like the teaching i got in march it's okay if you just it's just the four of you there's i have two children and my husband and i was the four of us for a long about about three weeks didn't talk to a single soul but what i got out of that in recognizing that that's what's important i think there's teachings and telling us that in our in our culture we get teachings from everything we get teachings from the good from the bad but we also get teachings to be to recognize things happen for a reason that's a part of what we believe and knowing that it's okay to be alone for a while to maybe self-preserve your family you know kind of work put that protection back here in your own home in your own moyes in your own lodge and then soon together you'll gather in a good way when it's time for you to do that and we need to be mindful of that and that's what i believe as an indigenous person and finally do you have any thoughts or messages you would like people to remember from our conversation today i think I always go back to what what's helped me and what helped me through through this as a doctor as I walk out my door each day and as I put on my coat and I don my mask is to recognize we're doing this to protect each other and there's a saying that it's just for now but it's not that it's just for now it's a period of time where there's so much that we need to learn and but the more we do in protecting each other the more there's it's very simple they might the more we do to protect each other, the better off we're going to be a month from now. Because the effort we put in today is really going to have payoff later on. And it's just a simple act of listening and understanding and working together, I think, is the key message that I, it's being kind to each other, work together and recognize as though it seems dark and although it seems, you know, anxiety provoking and scary. If we just continue to work together and we continue to support each other and identify where we need help, we will then in the end be able to be there for each other. We will be able to see, you know, those moccasins in the snow because we're going to continue to, to be here. And that's what we need to recognize, that kindness, working together and identifying where we need help and when we need help 
will, will help us remain strong. You know, if that's really what, what I, what I, my message I share with myself and really to share even with my children that, you know, my kids don't want to stay home. I said, well, just for now, let's protect ourselves. So in the end, we'll protect our elders, we'll protect our land, we'll protect where we come from. So next year, we will be here to celebrate that. That's really what I, the message I like to share with my patients, with my family, and really what I live by too, because it helps. It's hard. It's hard. I worry each day, is this the day I'm going to get it? It's true. It's really, as a frontline person, I get scared. I get scared when I leave my home. It's almost like you go out in a bit of a battle. You go out in a battle and you wonder, is this the day? You know, you're grateful at the end of the day. There's a saying called hand to heart in our community that you take that and you protect yourself. And, and just for people to know, it's not forever. And we, we, have, we have the means to know. Thanks, Dr. Potts. You have been listening to the Alberta Health Services COVID-19 podcast. For the latest information on COVID-19, please visit alberta.ca forward slash COVID-19. Thanks for listening.